Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you have joined us uh, for worship. We trust that God will speak to us this morning in the ways that we need to hear from him. And I know that we just prayed, but let's go to the Lord once again in prayer and ask that he would reveal his truth to us and his power and presence through the preaching of his word at this time. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you for your great love. As I often pray, with which you've loved us, your amazing grace, which you have so freely made available to us and through us. And God, as we continue looking through Romans, we think about the great love that you've had for us, that you have for us, and the grace that you've made available to us, but not only to us, but to the world. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts a passion for your grace a passion to reach the world with the truth of your love and your great salvation. May it not be a truth or a message that we keep to ourselves, that we celebrate that we are saved, but that we seek the salvation of the world. Lord, speak to us in these moments in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I say the word allegiance, what immediately comes to your mind? Pledge of Allegiance. Like, think for me in a sec, think with me for a second about through your life, about how many times in your life you have used the words allegiance without the pledge of. Right? Think how many times. I, I actually thought through that today and I couldn't. Like, as soon as I th- hear the word allegiance, I immediately think the pledge of, the pledge of allegiance. The words all just for us as Americans, they naturally go together. Couldn't think of a handful of times I've used allegiance without the pledge. It's, it's an incredibly important part of our national identity as Americans, the pledges. In the context of the Pledge of Allegiance, the, the word allegiance would be defined as devotion or loyalty. I pledge devotion and loyalty to the flag and what it represents. And it's a matter of of national identity, of national alignment, of national priority and procedure, us walking together as a country. And that's all good and fine. That's not a bad thing. As is often the case, however, I wondered if there might be more to the word allegiance than what we often get or often think of. See, when, when we use words over and over and over again, we take for granted what they mean. As a matter of fact, when we use words, it actually changes the dictionary definition of what those words mean over time. So what a word might have meant 20 years ago, it may not mean today because of popular usage. Now, personally, I think that's the dumbest thing ever. Words should mean what words mean all the time. And just because a bunch of doofuses like me decide they're going to turn a word into slang doesn't mean it should lose its original meaning. Especially when, and that's especially true when you think of something like this, like the Pledge of Allegiance and, and what it may, may mean or, or what allegiance in general would mean for us. And so I went and looked it up. And as I looked it up, it it was interesting because as I'm looking at the word, they tell me where the word came from, and I'm like, oh, well, no, duh. How did I miss that my whole life? If you look at the word allegiance, right in the middle of it is a word that we don't use anymore, and that word is liege. Right? Like when you're kids and you're playing the fortress and you have a king or you're watching a movie about knights and, and kings and queens and, and princesses and all that, the, the liege would be the lord, right? The, the king, the ruler of the land, the powerful person to whom the person is answering. Right there in the middle of the word allegiance is the word liege. In feudal times, a liege was a a man of power, position, and means. This person would would have a large number of of people who who would live and serve on his lands as his subjects. So legions was the loyalty or obedience due to the Lord, to the liege. Legions was was the, the duty of that belonged in obedience that belonged to the Lord by these subjects or peasants. In the job of the servants, 
was to submit to and obey his or her Lord's commands and serve their purposes on their land in their world, if you will. But here's the thing. As we look at the word, liege is not the only word that's in there. As a matter of fact, there's a word that leads into liege, and that first word is allege or allay. And, and what that word does for us is it shows that this is not a one-way one street. The, the word doesn't just go one way. It's not just that I, as the peasant, have to obey them, the Lord. It's not that I, the low, lowly, have to obey and, and serve them who are higher in station than me, but, but that they, as the Lord, actually have a responsibility to me that they are offering to me as well. And their job is to allay. Their job is to protect and provide for. The Lord's job is to allay the fears then of the servants. So the servant's job is to serve the purposes of the master, while the Lord takes care of all the details to make it so they can serve without fear or frustration. Both have jobs. Allegiance then isn't a one-way street. It is a reciprocal relationship that places responsibility on two parties, the servant and the Lord. And this is of particular importance for us as followers of Jesus, as those who are coming to the word of God to understand that, that our allegiance to Jesus does result in us serving his purposes and submitting to his power. But it also is a recognition that there is a responsibility that he puts upon himself for us. And it's not just about what we do for Jesus. I would actually go a step further. That in our case, our allegiance is much less about what we do for Jesus and more about what we accept that he does for us. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. This is one of the most popular passages when we think about the lordship of Christ and our allegiance. We pledge allegiance to Jesus. This is actually the passage from which the whole of this series sprang. So in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and following, it says this. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but that their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. And they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that the message concerning faith that we proclaim, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess and are by faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious 
by those who are not a nation. And I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I, found, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I find this to be very interesting as we look at Romans 10, where it falls in connection with the broader text of Romans. And we could have easily started Romans chapter 9 with the same point that we're going to start Romans chapter 10 with. And it's this, that passion without understanding seldom leads to right results. Passion without understanding seldom leads to right results. Now, I don't want us to miss this, and I don't just want us to to jump into chapter 10. Actually, I wish we would have had two hours last week so that we could have gone through both of these together because it's really interesting. Last week, we talked about Romans chapter 9, which is a very difficult passage that a lot of us as pastors, I'll be honest, again, I didn't want to deal with it. We kind of leave that one alone and push it to the side, or we we go really hard into the deep theology of it and and often misuse the text. But Romans chapter 9 is the passage they used to talk about predestination. And even beyond that, the idea of double predestination, that there are some that God predestines to go to heaven, while because he predestines them to go to heaven, he must then therefore predestine others to go to hell, which is utter, utter lunacy when you look at the grace of God throughout the rest of Scripture. And we take that chapter 9, if we look at it, we can, we can do that. We can make it say that, and it can seem like God's grace is extremely limited. That God's love is only for a small, very particular group of people. But we can only do that if we just take Romans chapter 9 by itself. Because chapter 9 leads right into chapter 10. And you know what I notice about these two chapters? They form parallels. If you go back and read them, they in bracket them out, they actually say similar things. How does chapter 9 start? Doesn't chapter 9 start with Paul saying, I speak the truth and I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Well, why, Paul? Why do you have great sorrow and unceasing anguish? Well, he tells us, For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul says, I would literally go to hell if it meant this entire people group could go to heaven. I would give up my own salvation, the greatest good that God has given me. I would sacrifice that and take eternal perdition If I could give the grace of God to my people and they would accept the adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Well, where does Paul start chapter 10 then? Does Paul not start with a concise restatement of what he said at the beginning of chapter 9? Yes, he does. Look at chapter 10. Paul says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire in prayer to God for the Israelites is what? That they may be saved. Paul doubles down on it. He goes back, now he doesn't give the long explanation that he gave before, but he doesn't need to because it's in the context of the letter. Paul says again, remember what I just said back there? I would give anything to see people come to Christ. This is the great passion and prayer of Paul's heart, that people would come to Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just a passion that was lip service that he wrote in letters. We know from historical record that Paul walked this talk to the point where he may not have gone to hell to see other people come to Christ, but he lived in a veritable hell in order to tell people about Jesus Christ. The man got beat up and thrown into prison everywhere he went. You cannot make the argument that Paul did not, one, love Jesus, and two, want to tell people about him. Very clearly articulated throughout the New Testament. Paul shows this great love that he has. Paul wants to see people, his people, Israel, accept God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. And if we go back again to the, the parallels, we look at Romans 9. And in Romans 9, Paul, after making that statement, lays out the great availability of God's promises. 
And what, God, what Paul shows in Romans chapter 9 is God's responsibility. What God takes upon himself as his responsibility. That God's grace is given through God's discretion. That God chooses when he will show his grace. That God created us and that his desire is to show grace. But he ends up showing his wrath because of our rebellion. And then he comes to the end of chapter 9. And he shows us that the issue that the Israelites had, that the issue of Romans chapter 9 is not that God's grace was limited, but that the Israelites had a problem with the the ubiquity of God's grace, that God's grace was available to the entire world. Which if we just take John 3.16, right? It's hard to get around and say, well, Jesus just came from some. Doesn't the passage say, for God so loved the world? Last time I checked, that's pretty big, right? And we can do all the theological gymnastics that we want, and and Paul in Romans chapter chapter 10 is going to take away those semantical gymnastics, the the wrangling of the language, the wrenching around of the language to make it say less than it is. Paul is going to take that away in Romans chapter 10. But Paul shows, going through chapter 10, that he has this great passion to see people saved, that God has made his great grace available to all people, regardless of anything that they've done, and that God is incredibly patient, and that that makes people mad, but God is still being patient. Romans chapter 10, Paul starts with that desire to see people saved, and then he goes into not God's responsibility in the salvific process, but our responsibility to respond. Here's the thing, if we take, if we're going to pull our theology from Romans, we can't just pull it from Romans 9 and then pretend that Romans 10 isn't there. Because in Romans 9, Paul talks about the agency of God, the activity of God in salvation. In Romans 10, it's all about our responsibility to respond to what God has done. It's the agency of humanity that we have a responsibility to either accept or reject the grace of Jesus. And we get to the end, and you know what Paul says again? He quotes some of the same passages and says that God's grace is available to everyone, and he keeps holding it out with hope that all that would come would come. It's actually really cool. I apologize if that hits you as a little bit nerdy, but I love this, that that parallels and it takes away that this idea that God is this cold, distant, uncaring being that created some people that they could burn forever in hell. That was his intent. And some that they can go to heaven and that God sends some to hell so that those go to heaven know how great they get it. That's terrible theology. It doesn't align with the rest of Scripture. And in fact, it doesn't even align with the flow of Romans 9 and 10. And Paul argues that this passion of his, this passion to see others receive God's grace, is both the passion that God himself has, but also the passion that we as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ should have. That we should have a passion, a deep-seated desire, and our hearts should be broken as we ended last week. Our hearts should be broken over the state of the, the world, the state of the lost. And rather than desiring to see them get their just desserts, we should be seeking to do everything we can, everything within our power to see them get the grace of God. Now, Paul does give a warning here that we could have pulled from the first chapter 9 as well. It is possible to have a passion for God while failing to know him or serve his purposes. It is possible to have a passion for God while failing to know him or serve his purposes. And Israel for us throughout the Bible, in fact, gives us a very sobering reminder and warning of this. They had all of the evidence, right? Paul has spent a great deal of Romans 1 through 10 laying out for us all of the advantages that they had as the people of Israel. They had all of the evidence. They had access to all of the information, but somehow still failed to come to the right conclusions. Paul tells us of the privileges, that that they had the sign of circumcision, that they had an actual physical sign that was given to them, placed into their body to remind them of their relationship with God, their special relationship with God, and not just their relationship, but God's promise, his covenant to them. They had the law, the, the written word of God. And while they were woefully fell woefully short of following it. The fact is that they had this this word of God, this law that demonstrated God's desire to be in relationship with them and to restore right relationship with them. 
They had the promises. They had temple, the temple and worship. They had the physical manifestation of God's presence in our midst. They had a shared history. And most importantly, they even had God's physical presence and the manifestation of his power in the flesh in Jesus Christ. They had all of the signs. Listen, they had, these people in the first century had some of them physically. Understand that some of these people were alive and had heard, surely, of the crucifixion of Jesus. That this was still news in their day. Whereas for us, here we are, thousands of years removed. We don't have any more evidence than they have. And they had it even closer, and somehow they missed it. This is a reality that, that we face in our own lives, not just in our following Jesus, but we've, we've had instances where we've seen all of the signs and somehow missed the proverbial exit. I think of last year as we were coming back from Mission Serve, I was driving the bus, and, and because I'm the only one that can drive the big bus, I had been driving for something like 12 hours. And I was done with the driving. I was done listening to Siri on the GPS. I was done reading the dumb signs on the road. I was done. I was ready to get out of the car. And so we're pulling in to Seymour, and I'm like, finally, I know where I am. Let's get it going. Let's get where we're go- get, get home, get out of the bus, get where we need to be. And as we drive, I see these signs. And these signs are telling me, Seymour, exit, take exit, whatever. And I'm like, no, that sign's wrong. I've done that before, and if I take that exit, it's going to take me to North Vernon. This is not good. I'm not taking that exit. I don't care what that sign says. See another sign, big flashing sign with lights telling me, road construction ahead. Make sure you take this exit. And I'm like, no, sir, that sign has been here for a while. It is wrong. I'm going to take the proper exit because I don't want to have to drive an extra half a mile in order to get home. So I ignore the signs. Siri is screaming at me. Listen, dude, take the first exit. And I'm like, Karen, I don't want to hear from you anymore. So I turn off the GPS. I tell my riders, some of my adults are telling me, hey, don't miss the exit. And I'm like, I've got it, okay? I've seen the signs. I've heard Karen yelling at me for the last 20 minutes. I know where I am. I've got this. So I continue driving down the road, 65 miles an hour. And I passed the first exit only to see roadblocks blocking off the second exit. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Because now I've got to drive however many miles up to 11 and then drive all the way back down. And beyond that, I've got Josh riding behind me going, what an idiot. (laughs) Didn't he see? I think we got a message from Josh saying, hey, didn't you see all the signs? Yes, Joshua, I saw the signs. Thank you. And don't laugh too hard because I know that many of you in this room have done this, that you've driven down the road and you've seen the signs but somehow still missed the exit. And I think the reality of this, it's it's funny when it's in the car, but I'm telling you, this happens more often than we want to admit when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he has given us all of the signs that we read the truth of his word, that we see realities and things in the world that are kind of indicating that we need to go this way or that way. We see all the signs, and we know that this is the exit, but something inside of us says, I know better. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, like even in the last two days, just yesterday I got a text from somebody that said to me, well, I know that I'm supposed to show the grace of God, but there's no grace in their lives, so I'm not going to do it. Have you read the Bible? We don't get to just show grace when other people are gracious to us. That's not how grace works. That is earned favor. Unearned favor is I give the favor even when you don't deserve it. Or even let's go beyond that, especially when you don't deserve it. But we look at this and we're like, I don't know, let me fix this for you, Lord. This doesn't quite work the way that I want it to. And we want to fix things for God. As if he somehow made a mistake. As if we somehow understand better. Lord, I want to follow you and I will do whatever you tell me and I will go wherever you want me to go. Except for, let me just fix these couple of things for you, God. These things in in, in 20th century America, they don't make sense. Listen, if God's word doesn't make sense to 20th century America, it's not God's word that needs to change. It's us. 
And God's word is all about us, our hearts being molded and remade into the image of Jesus, not us molding and remaking Jesus into ours. And that is the problem, brothers and sisters. That is why we don't have a passion for the lost. That's why we would rather see them get their just desserts than God's grace, because we are very American in our mindsets, and we allow our Americanism to overrule our Christianity. And this ought not be so. He is the Lord, and we are the servants. Passion for God without proper understanding of God and submission to his work will cause us to miss the mark. Passion for God without a proper understanding of God and submission to his will and work will cause us to miss the mark. The gospel is not, nor has it ever been, about what we do for God but what God and his great love does for, for, in, and through us. It's about what God does for, in, and through us. Verse 3 of chapter 10, Paul tells us what the problem was with the Israelites. It says, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, well, let's insert that word, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This is the warning for us. A do-it-yourself gospel will lead to a self-righteous, self-serving faith. A do-it-yourself gospel will lead to a self-righteous, self-serving faith. And the reason for that is this, that when we do a do-it-yourself gospel, it is about our power, our ability, and our efficacy to save ourselves. We, in effect, become our own God. We become our own saviors. We put our trust in ourselves. And the people of God, both Jews and Christians, have a long history of turning God's word into a self-help manual. A book that shows us how to find God's favor in six easy steps. This is religion at its worst. It leads us to believe that we can save ourselves through following some divine list of do's and don'ts. But but religion is not a dirty word. It need not be a bad thing. When we don't tie ourselves to these restrictions of do's and don'ts, but instead tie ourselves, which is what religion means, to bind oneself to, rather than binding ourselves to rules and regulations so that we can do it ourselves, we bind ourselves to Jesus Christ. Religion only works when it is predicated or couched in a relationship. It's not just about us showing our allegiance to God, but allowing him to allay our fears and mitigate our failures both parts of the word, right? It's our loyalty to our liege, but it's our humble acceptance of his help, of his provision and his power in our lives. Salvation requires us to humbly submit to God, not just so that we can do as he's asked, but so that he can do for us what he promises he will do, trusting his grace to make right what went wrong in our relationship. Trusting him to repair the damage that has been done in our lives through the presence and power of sin. It is arrogance and pride that causes us to fight this. To trade God's grace for our own effort. To to try to take control and fix it ourselves. And this reveals our true passion. Ourselves. In verse 4, Paul tells us this is, this is foolishness, that Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He says that Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. His life, Christ's death and life, fulfilled the law. He completed its righteous requirements and made way for our salvation. Salvation can only be accepted, not accomplished. And that requires humble submission to his will. It requires a properly aligned passion. A passion for God and his work in our lives and in the world. A willingness to adapt and adjust our practice of life to his calling and his direction. 
But salvation doesn't come through our effort. Salvation comes through properly placed allegiance rather than through right action. Salvation comes through properly placed allegiance rather than through right action. And this is true all the way back to Moses. Paul does something interesting here. He makes a really interesting connection. He doesn't just draw this from New Testament truth concerning Jesus. He ties it all the way back to Moses in the creation of the law. He demonstrates that salvation has been through faith, by grace, from the very outset. He tells us in verse 5, which seems to be a contradicting uh, statement to what I just said. But follow me for a second. He says, Moses writes this about righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Now, seemingly on the surface, it seems that this means that we can be righteous by living right lives. And this is, in fact, true. That if we could live this book without fail, we would demonstrate our righteousness. We would be like unto Christ, and we would achieve through our own righteousness right standing before God. But here's the thing. Right action is an ineffective means of salvation because you and I are extremely ineffective at living right lives. Life can only be accomplished according to verse 5 and according to the words of Moses. Life, life now and eternally can only be accomplished through right action so long as the person continues to act rightly all the time. Understand that this is what it's saying, that the law only works to bring about righteousness in your life so long as you continually and constantly do what it says. At any point, if you make an error and you do not make amends for that error, no matter how small, you are unrighteous. I don't know about you. I know enough of the mistakes I do make. And I know how, how my mind works to know enough about myself to know that I probably make more than my share of mistakes that I don't know about. I don't want to put my eternal salvation on the back of my own efforts. Because I am not good at doing what God wants all the time. It's just not a safe bet. And Paul has already gone to great lengths to tell us all. It, Romans, the beginning of Romans is not really good news because it tells us how terrible we are. That we are all sinners. And that it's only through God's grace that we can find salvation. The problem with righteousness through the law is it only works so long as we're living it out without fail. Salvation then is by nature supernatural. It is beyond our abilities and only possible through divine intervention. We cannot do it on our own. We need God's help. And Paul goes back to Moses to demonstrate this even from the law, even from the words of Moses. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend in the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. These are words from the Old Testament as Paul, or as Moses, is talking about the writing of the law. Who, who will ascend? Who, and, and the question is this. Who is capable of climbing the way to God on their own? Well, we don't have to. We don't have to try to make our way to God on our own. Why not? Because Christ came down to us. Emmanuel, God with us, Christ condescended. He came down and became flesh and blood. We don't have to try to get to God because God in his grace came to us in the work and person of Jesus Christ, opening up heaven to us in the process. Well, then the question is, who will descend? Who, who would bring us up from the dead? Who will bring resurrection life? Well, well, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to fear or figure out how we're going to defeat death and hell. Death and hell have no power. Jesus himself said, this, this is my truth. This is on the, my church is going to be built upon this, and the gates of hell will not triumph against it. Christ conquered death through his resurrection, and by the power and presence of his spirit offers us resurrection power as well. We don't have to try to get into heaven on our own merits because Christ has made a way. 
We don't have to fear the power of death because Christ has made a way. God did in his power all of the things we could not do in our own. Salvation has always been the free gift of God through faith by submission to his work. And Paul here connects the power, or the concept of the mosaic concept of salvation to the gospel of Jesus. He says in verse 8, But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth. And in your heart, that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Paul says, the message that we are proclaiming is nothing new. This is how it's been since the beginning, all the way back to Moses. It was never about rightly doing all of the things all the time. It was always about relying on the power and presence of God in our lives. Relying on God to give us what we could not get for ourselves. It came through what? Two things it says. Something that was in our mouth. And in our heart. And then Paul makes the declaration that is so important to us as we consider salvation in the New Testament. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation has always been the result of personal confession through the mouth that flows from a heart of faith. Our salvation comes through declaring humble allegiance and reliance on the power and provision of God through Jesus Christ. It comes through a deep-seated belief in our hearts about who he is, what he did, and what that means for our our own lives. And this is not just a a for-later thing. That one one day we get to have this new eternal life. It is for now. Paul says that when we make this confession and when we believe in our hearts, you will be saved. It is something that Paul is saying. It happens at that moment, but that has been happening and will continue happening. Just like Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. We make a mistake when we think that that salvation is us accepting the grace of Jesus, then going back about our hard work so that we can eventually have the grace that God promises us in heaven. God promises us that grace now. That salvation is a present reality that we live in here, now, today. The resurrection life we experience in Christ will one day be bodily. But when paired with the Lordship of Christ, it indicates a new life that we live today. Salvation is not the result result of a holy life, but a holy life is the result of our salvation. And this is where it gets really good. Because Paul lays out exactly who this salvation is for. Just like in the previous passage, we could make it really limited. Here, Paul disambiguates that, and he tells us exactly who it's for. And it's actually quite repetitive. Paul tells us that his salvation is available to anyone, all, and everyone who put their faith in Jesus. Salvation is available to anyone, all, and everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. And that is not me just putting words into a point. I am pulling those words out of the text. And I even went back and checked. This is actually the way that it works in the Greek text. Paul uses four different words to demonstrate that the salvation is prolific, that it produces and is available to everybody. Everybody. You can't do the linguistic gymnastics because Paul doesn't, he clarifies over and over and over again. I only use three of them here. In verses 11 through 13, Paul uses these words. Verse 11, he says, anyone who believes, everyone say that with me, Anyone who believes. So salvation is for who? Anyone. Right? Verse 12. He says the Lord Jesus is Lord of all and blesses all who call on him. So salvation, according to verse 12, is for who? All. Verse 13. He says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So salvation is for whom? Everyone. You know what, but Paul actually doubles down and we lose this in our English translation. He uses two words there. It's everyone and whosoever. Everyone and whosoever. So salvation is for anyone. 
Salvation is for all. Salvation is for everyone. And salvation is for whosoever. Seems pretty open. Good luck condensing that down. Last time I checked, anyone, everyone, and all, and whosoever means everybody. (laughs) It's, It's an overstatement, but Paul does it. How then can we pretend that God's grace is just for a select few? Now granted, there is a responsibility again on our part. That we have to believe, we have to receive, we have to accept, we have to call. There is a responsibility on our parts. We, in effect, have to pledge allegiance to Jesus. And again, going back to the beginning of where we started, allegiance is not just about me saying, I will do what you tell me, Jesus. That's what we make it about, but it's not. It's Jesus, I will accept what you want to do for, through, and in me. It's a reciprocal relationship. And I would argue that we have just as hard of a time accepting God's grace in our lives, even more so. I think that we sometimes, if we're honest, we would rather do it ourselves. We would rather believe that we can make it right in our own power. We would rather believe that there's enough goodness in us that we can earn God's favor. Allow me to to just break that down for you. You can't. All of you in here looking at me, all of you out there in internet land, you are not good enough. I am not good enough. We are not good enough. No one is good enough. That's why Jesus had to make salvation available to anyone, all, and everyone, whosoever. I want you to say those words with me again. Anyone, all, everyone and whosoever. Now that's going to be really important for us because as we pledge allegiance to Jesus, it's not just about accepting God's grace in our own lives. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes a step further because yes, we must accept it. But Paul's like, hey, 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 there's not a stop here. You don't get it and be like, hard stop. It's good enough. No, 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 no. You've got to share this mess. We are called to take the message to the masses. When I say we, I don't mean some ambiguous we, the church. I mean you. I mean you, Larry Lee. I mean you, Joyce Corey. I mean you, Robin Myers. You want me to keep pointing names? I'll call all your names out. Or do you get the point? It's all of us, brothers and sisters. This is to be the passion of our hearts. To share the message of Jesus with the masses. The message of the gospel is meant to be shared. And Paul gives us a logical order sequence of how people come to salvation. To call on the Lord, Paul says, a person must first believe in their hearts, right? To call out to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, save me. You've got to believe that there is a Jesus and that what he did matters. To call on the Lord, a person must first believe in their hearts. To believe in their hearts, a person must hear with their ears, which makes sense. If a person is going to believe a message, they must first hear the message. It's like I tell my wife all the time, listen, babe, I can't respond to what you want if you don't tell me. Now, to her defense, she often says, you can't respond if you don't listen. (laughs) Both are true. But you know what our responsibility is? Our responsibility isn't whether or not they hear. Our responsibility is to make the hearing available. To hear with their ears, a person must share. And in order to share the message, a person must be sent. Listen, just to make sure that you know that I'm not just pulling these things out of my head here. It says there, Paul says in verses 14 and 15, How then can they, that's the world, everyone, everybody, all, right? Whosoever, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. What's a little ambiguous? Well, who are those beautiful feet? It's the beautiful size nine and a half, Kyrie's. These are the beautiful feet. It's the beautiful size seven, Jordan's back there towards the back. Those are the beautiful feet. 
Here's the truth. Let's let's disambiguate what Paul says with the words of Jesus. Tag, you're it. Ours, all of us, are the beautiful feet that are to take the gospel into the world. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, doesn't Jesus say, he says, all authority has been given. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I am the boss, I am the Lord, right? Which is our confession. Jesus, you're Lord. I accept your salvation. Well, you also got to accept the responsibility. What's the responsibility? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's you. If we have claimed Jesus as our Lord, we are to go into the world, and as we are doing so, we're all going to do that. We are to make disciples. Well, how do we do that? By, by baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I have commanded you. We are to be those people. Acts 1.8, Jesus doubles down on this with his disciples. He tells his disciples, but you will... Receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the world. That's, again, us. We are to be his witnesses, those that share the truth, testify to who he is and what he's done everywhere. So Matthew tells us that we are to take it to everybody, and Acts tells us that we are to take it everywhere which means that none of us have an excuse because all of you are somebody somewhere at all times. Tag, you're it. It's God's desires to make his message available to all and it is our responsibility to share his passion for the lost. Verses 18 and 19, Paul demonstrates again the passage of the, the passion of God, quoting the Old Testament, noting Israel's opportunity and stubborn refusal to believe, but also demonstrating God's grace and how it continues to endure. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, Did Israel not hear? He said, Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. That's the witnesses, and their words to the end of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are a nation, and I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. God is saying, look, I'm making my grace available to everyone, and if that makes you angry, too bad. This is how I'm going to do it. But it's also meant to make them envious, that they might then accept the grace of God. He goes on, though, and God extends his grace to those who neither sought it nor asked for it, those who didn't even know they needed it. Look at verse 20. Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me, which is good news because earlier Paul has said that no one seeks God. I was found by those who did not seek me, and I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. Well, I didn't ask, I didn't ask Jesus to do that for me. That's okay, you didn't have to. That's what grace is. That's how great his love is. Verse 21, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. There may not be a more encouraging verse in all of Scripture. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God says, look, I am, I am constantly and consistently holding my hand out to, an obstin- to people that reject me, to a people that refuse me. I continue to hold my hand out to a people that does not deserve me. I continue to hold my hand out to a people that does not want me. And if you go and look at the work and person of Jesus, the truth is that Jesus held out his hand to people who crucified and killed him. Do we have the right then to do any less than our Lord did? Here's the truth. God's allegiance to us is unfaltering and unfailing. His passion for his grace to save his people is beyond amazing. If you've never accepted the gift of God's saving grace or experienced the peace and joy of resting in his saving embrace, I invite you to do so this morning. And Paul lays out the mechanics of how it works for you quite simply this morning. That we must believe in our hearts that Jesus is who the Word of God says He is and that He has done what the Word of God says He has done. 
and to confess with our mouths that belief and our understanding that he is the Lord of our lives. And here's the truth. When we call on his name, we receive the righteousness that comes by faith. Our sins are forgiven. And we are made sons and daughters of God and our salvation is secure. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done and continues to do. But I'm going to guess that for more of us this morning, perhaps we need a reminder of what God has done for us. And we need to reaffirm our allegiance and reliance upon his lead and his grace in our lives. In faith, we must submit to his call for us and to us, both by living the holy life for which he has saved us, but also through sharing the truth of his glorious gospel with the world around us, with everyone, all, anyone, whosoever. We are each of us ambassadors for the gospel. And in obedience to our Lord and as an evidence of our allegiance to him, we must share the truth of who he is and what he has done, both in word and deed. May we, like Paul, share the passion of the Lord's heart. May we not miss the exit and make it about us, but may we understand that it's about him, what he's done, and what he desires to do for a world in need that all might have the opportunity to be saved by faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ. His grace is amazing. His grace is available to everyone. May we see it. May we accept it. May we share it. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Father, I pray that you would continue to impress upon us the greatness of your love the greatness of your grace, Lord, that we would accept it in our lives daily, that we would understand how much you've loved us and you, we would submit ourselves to your lead in love. And Lord, that you would work in and through us through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to make your gospel known, that we would indeed be the beautiful feet that carry your gospel to a world in need. What an amazing privilege that you've given to us. May we not overlook it, May we not miss it, but may we share the message with the masses that everyone, all, and anyone whosoever might believe in and call upon the name of Jesus, that they may be saved, that you might do your work in and through them just as you've done in and through us. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.